Nobody in New York even wants to believe that this is happening or anywhere else. I mean, I remember I had one very good friend of mine who's a book editor for a major house. And at that point, I was thinking, well, maybe it's a book. And uh, she said, well, everybody knows it sucks to be poor and black in the South. And I just went, wanted to punch her out. <laughs> Welcome to On Assignment. This is the podcast where we take you behind the scenes and introduce you to all the reporters and filmmakers who come by the journalism school throughout the year. I'm Lisa Cohen. And I'm Abby Wright. This is our last episode of the season as the school year is winding down, coming to a close. We'll be working on more episodes to bring you in the fall. But for this final episode, we're featuring a conversation with an accomplished filmmaker whose films cover the intersection of race, poverty, and politics in the United States. We'll be discussing the making of her latest powerful and inspiring documentary film, Wilhelmina's War, about living HIV positive in the rural South. Yeah, it's a film that we screened at the Journalism School Film Fridays a few weeks ago. And she wasn't dropping by the Journalism School. She actually is here all the time. She happens to run the documentary program here at Columbia, and she's a DuPont winner herself. And she's one of our jurors, June Cross. June is with us today in the studio. Hi, June. Thank you so much for having me. Let's just start with the basics. Okay, Wilhelmina is Wilhelmina Dixon, a 62-year-old grandmother who lives in Williston, South Carolina, really in a very rural area, which once upon a time was the, the cotton-picking area of the state. And actually, is the, it's the area where they, um, they actually sewed all of the Confederate Army's um, wow. uniforms were made in this area of the state. So the Civil War is very present <laughs> in this area. Um, Wilhelmina herself is the daughter of sharecroppers. Um, and now she's, uh, as an adult, as a, as a grandmother. She um, First her daughter, um, then her son-in-law uh, were, came down with uh, contracted HIV, the virus that causes AIDS. Then she had a granddaughter born HIV positive. And because of that, she was really galvanized into action and trying to bring greater awareness about the virus to the area where she lives, which is a very conservative area. Um, it's actually the area where Nikki Haley, the current governor of South Carolina, comes from. Um, and um, so she's, but she's sort of fighting the uh, the silence, the refusal of any of her neighbors to really engage with it, or even the refusal of people who have relatives living with HIV AIDS to even talk about it at all. Um, so I followed this for, followed her story for five years. So it's been really, it was a very emotionally tough film to work on. I think it was necessary to do a contextual film because people don't know what's going on in the South. Um, people don't think about, people don't know that the, the epicenter of the AIDS epidemic in the United States is now in the southern United States. Um, people don't know that 80% of the new cases are among African Americans. Um, people don't know that in some states, in Louisiana, Florida, and Mississippi, if you are diagnosed with HIV AIDS, you are likely to die within five years of contracting the disease. That means that you have a better chance of surviving cancer than you do of surviving HIV. So this is a disease that everybody in New York, San Francisco, and even in Atlanta and Houston thinks that you can take a pill for and it'll be fine. But it's not fine if you're not living in the city. Wow. At the screening, Betsy asked you questions about the making of the film, and your collaborator was also there. Oh, Lisa Desai, yes. Yeah, Lisa actually found, Lisa's a former student of mine, um, and she actually 
initially found the story. Lisa had gone to South Carolina to find um, women who were working in reproductive rights and found the statistic that black women were dying from AIDS. In in 2009, it was true. It's gotten better since. And so in 2009, black women aged 18 to 34 um, were more likely to die from AIDS than from any other cause. Um, And Lisa sort of followed that trail and ended up discovering Wilhelmina and um, and Deschal in the in Williston, and it was uh, that was the beginning. Well, I thought you did such an incredible job of bringing these statistics or these headlines to life. You know, you can read about something, but to meet these people and to really see them evolve over the years what was incredibly powerful. So, congratulations! Thank you so much. And it's a well, really tough subject to make come to life Thank and to you. make people care about. So, kudos. mission accomplished. Thank you. For more information about June's work, go to onassignmentpodcast.org. June was joined on stage by Wilhelmina's War Story producer, Lisa Desai, and moderator, Professor Betsy West. I mean, were you looking? Did you hear about the facts about Mm. this, about the South and rural aid? We had a grant to do a film about the history of the reproductive justice movement which was like, it's so boring that I could fall down on the floor right now and go to sleep. Um, The subject wasn't boring. It was just, it was like way too big. You couldn't do one documentary. So we were looking for- a foundation grant. A foundation foundation grant. Some, you know, foundation people love to sit around and think about, well, what do we want to give money for? So I think I had sent Lisa, um, and you went down and met Wilhelmina, and then you spent like two years trying to get me to agree to do it, and I kept saying- (laughs) Oh. I met Wilhelmina. You hadn't shot. You didn't. You spent two years trying to she convince. Ch- yeah, she kept going, and uh, I don't know why I kept giving you money to go, but you kept going. <laughs> and were you shooting at all? Yeah, it was just me for the first couple of years, because um, I'd sort of developed a relationship with Wilhelmina, and um, you know, I was trying to get June to go, and so, and they sort of opened up to me, and I took a liking to them, and I took a real liking to Wilhelmina. Um, and then they sent us the video of Tony. It got to that point, and that's when we... That's when I jumped in. When I saw the, the footage of Tony in the nursing home, um, I'd, because I'd covered the AIDS epidemic for the news hour, I'd seen people dying like that, but not for like 20 years. I mean, it was like 1983, I think, the last time I saw somebody like that, and then that was when I was like, okay, I'll go. And um, we met Tony two days before, well, you already knew her, but I met Tony two days before she died. Um, I was I was just shocked, you know. I mean, I, I sort of get this feeling as a journalist. Like it tells me what film to do is like. It's a sense of um, outrage, you know. It's like, how is this allowed to stand? I felt that way about the New Orleans film that I did, and I felt that way when I saw Tony. You called it medical apartheid. Medical apartheid, yeah. Well, it is because I mean, I mean, if you look at. Um, so the Medicaid eligibility requirements for South Carolina is if you make more than $16,000 a year, you're not eligible for Medicaid. In Texas and Louisiana, if you make more than $5,000 a year, you're not eligible for Medicaid. You know, so that leaves a huge population that's too rich, <laughs> rich <laughs> to get health care. Right. These are the same states that are not uh, expanding Medicaid under Obamacare. And even if they did have access to health care, they're two hours away. Um, and that was sort of typical, that people had to travel that kind of distance. 
-hmm. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the the process of, of making the film. So how, once you got involved, then it was another four years of going down there, <laughs> yeah. back and forth, and I mean, how well, did it you Well, it wasn't four years going back yeah. and forth, because I do teach here full time, so, <laughs> uh, so it was four years of, um, I would go in the summertime, Lisa was going, we were going like every other month. We got a Ford Foundation grant, so that kept us going for a while. Then we ran out of money from Ford. And Lisa peeled off and had to go, <laughs> go actually earn a living. Yeah. Um, I was able to keep going because I was working. It was my full-time job was here, so I was at least getting a check. Um, so I just sort of I would go and you know I started cashing out my pension plan at one point, um, and then I, we finally were able to get a, a finishing grant from the Ford Foundation uh, to go through the last two years to finally bring it to completion. And, and you told me that there are several versions of this film. One there are. There are four <laughs> full different hours. <laughs> so it's a sad thing. Probably works. about eight to two years total of just editing this thing. We had a non-narrated version. Right. And what, and and what happened to those? Like, why, what was the... No one could understand them. Because... <laughs> <laughs> Through their accents, no one could understand either them or what was going on. Um, and the other thing was, I mean, Wilhelmina was great because she has such a common sense understanding of what's going on, but her impressions were often inaccurate. So any money she got from the state was from the state, but some of that money actually was coming from the federal government. And she didn't really understand that bureaucracy, which it took us, like, I would probably say a year of reporting. It was a, um, what do you call that? A clarity issue. Uh, well, not yeah. just clarity, yeah, but we're very often, it was like a forensic yeah. um, hunt. Film. Uh, that was the day we met Shamala, I think. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. We went off after that, and we had a couple of margaritas. That was. I think a we hot had a day. picture of margaritas. Yeah. Shamala, the woman. Shamala was the person who was, was planning her funeral. funeral. Yeah. Um, so she was 32, and she had. I just talked to her mother um, about two hours ago. Um, his name is also Lisa. There were lots of Lisas in this film. Lots of Lisas and lots of Tonys. Um, so Shamala had been in a, she was 17 and she got, she got into a relationship with a 35-year-old man and it turned out that the 35-year-old man had uh, AIDS and never told her, so that's how she got it. So in, in the interim, she gave, well not in the interim, but between 17 and 32, she had given birth to two children who were both negative. Um, but, you know, she was, because she was a Medicaid patient um, and lived far away, from um, the doctors, and she couldn't get her doctors to work with her, and she finally decided that her quality of life was so bad that she just didn't want to continue. That was a really bad day, I and mean, she's 32 years old, and she's got two kids. I've never met a mother who said, I'd rather die than continue living, and I have two children. I just, <laughs> Lisa and I were like looking at each other like, and that was like and, half and the story. see her mom beside her as well, sort of, Planning the funeral with her was, yeah. 
it was hard. Yeah. yeah. That's that's a pretty uh, that's a pretty devastating moment. What about the impact of this film on Deschal mm. and Wilhelmina? What what what's that meant for them? So they've been in, you've been in festivals. I mean, it hasn't yeah. aired yet, but it's been at various festivals. It was at uh, DOC NYC. It was at the U.S. Conference on AIDS in September, and then at DOC NYC, and then in Los Angeles at the Pan African Film Festival. Um, so Deschal and Wilhelmina got on a plane for the first time in their lives and came to Washington D.C. And then for the second time in their lives, I uh, got on a plane and came to Los Angeles um, and stayed in a fancy hotel that was paid for by the AIDS Healthcare Foundation. Deschel was smiling for a whole day, did not see one frown <laughs> the entire day. Um, and she came back and said she was, well, she'd gotten herself enrolled in a GED program from December, I think. And, uh, but then, Two days ago, she called me and said, or she texted me and said she'd just dropped out again because our reading skills, she, didn't, she couldn't understand the material. And the teacher wasn't explaining it in a way that she could get it, and she felt stupid. So she dropped out again. So up and down, up and down. So okay. where can people see the film? Okay, it was uh, it will be streaming on the Independent Lens website at uh, pbs.org until June 1st, and then after that it's for sale through Women Make Movies. And then we're holding screenings in various places around the country, but um, most of those now are for training purposes. It's fantastic that it's going to have this life of its own afterwards. Yeah, the long tail, <laughs> they call it. Yeah. Uh, they try to, uh, there's the broadcast and then there's the tail. And, you know, it's interesting. Since the last time I did a film, the whole structure of how you make a documentary and sell it has changed. So the last film I did aired in 2009 on Frontline. And it was basically, you know, you make the film, it airs, there's press coverage, it's done. And now there's a paradigm where... You make the film, you run it through as many festival screenings as you can do for about a year or so so that you can build um, sort of word of mouth about it in the film community. Then it has a broadcast date, and then you try to schedule screenings through um, advocacy groups that are attracted to your film for one reason or the other. But the idea that you have workshops that are affiliated with it, it just yeah. suggests that you can take this thing that is a program and you can, or a broadcast, and you can use it, and you can right. make something more of it. Yeah. Also, yes. all the different skill sets that you need to make a f successful film. It's overwhelming. <laughs> it really is. It requires that you collaborate. You know, I've spent a lot of time taking people out to lunch and asking them, how do I do this? Because I didn't have a budget for, like, the impact producer or the person who would help me with the festival sales or any of that. You know, so it, you, you have to just... I approached it like I approach reporting a story, except I was reporting how do I sell an in independent film in the world in 2015, you know. And there are all these, you know, there's Netflix and Amazon now, and, you know, there are all these outlets that didn't exist before. It becomes very... Um, tricky. Tricky, yeah. So we've opened for submission for the 2017 DuPont Awards, and our deadline is July the 1st. Those submissions are rolling in. I'm just kidding. As but we speak. They will. Yes. They will. Our 75th anniversary year. We have some special things we're working on for that. 
enter for submission by going to www.dupontawards.org. It'll take you into our website, give you instructions on how to enter. Enter your best work. And now back to the conversation between Betsy, June, Lisa Desai, and of course, as usual, our audience also got to ask questions. So while kind of, while doing this film, you know, it looked like it was almost emotionally exhausting dealing with um, individuals who's going through through this type of epidemic. And so my question is, did this take a toll on on on, on you? And this is to June and Lisa. Did well? Um, did, um, did, did this take a toll on you? And and if it did, how were you able to deal with it and and continue to get through this project? You know, the first, when I first went down to South Carolina, I, I thought I knew what to expect, but I wasn't prepared for it, not at all. Um, and I would go there for a week, at, you know, by myself and just sort of with nobody to talk to. I didn't have June on the road yet. So I'd come back and I, would, I was really just numb to everything because you'd be down in sort of the sticks at the end of a dirt road and see families and people who really needed help and, and you'd come back and um, nobody would know. Nobody would know they existed and it was sort of like this out of sight, out of mind thing. And um, so in some ways it was really hard to keep going, but in other ways it's what propelled me to keep pushing to, to do the story, to get their names out there. Um, so I think if you can use that feeling to kind of motivate you, um, it makes it a little bit easier to deal with. Yeah, ditto. I mean, it would be sort of. There was a period. I always used to joke and say the four scotch cure <laughs> was the best, um, but I think this experience sort of cured me of that, and I had to start finding. I started you know, like doing other things, doing yoga. I went and started. I talked to somebody about it. I went into therapy. Yes, I went into therapy. Um, yeah, because it was. It was. You come back, and nobody in New York even wants to believe that this is happening, or anywhere else. I mean, I remember I had one very good friend of mine who's a book editor for a major house. And at that point, I was thinking, well, maybe it's a book. And uh, she said, well, everybody knows it sucks to be poor and black in the South. And I just went, wanted to punch her out. First question was, um, it seemed like one of the themes was that AIDS really heavily hit the rural air, the rural community. Uh, yeah, that's so true. I, so I'm not really like a public health expert, but just, just for me, like I, I would assume that it would be the opposite. I would assume that like a city that would be more densely populated mm. would, would have a bigger would have a bigger problem. So I guess my first question was, um, uh, why, why, what so are absolute and absolute yeah. numbers, yes, yeah. the cities. But in, if you're looking at mm. percentages and rates, so public health. People measure thing in measure things in um, in rates, which is numbers per hundred thousand, as a way to hold steady for the fact that New York is so much bigger than Williston, South Carolina. So when you look at rates, um, that's part of what's going on. You know, it's and the reason a, is the it's really isolated. I mean, I think increase what it is is a reflection of the marginalization of people in rural areas. There's no jobs, therefore they have no insurance. Because they don't have it, because they don't have a job, they also don't have a car. So if you don't have a car, you can't afford to go to the doctor. Um, you know, there's you know, you don't go to the doctor because God forbid there's something wrong with you. 
then you have to pay for health care. How are you going to do that? You know, so it's just like it's, you begin to stack things up. Um, so my second question was, um, uh, it was pointed out that, uh, that uh, South Carolina and Nikki Haley specifically, they cut, they cut funding to a lot of the uh, AIDS outreach programs. Uh, I guess I was wondering what the rationale that they gave for that was. Just, just, just curious. Yeah. I remember the first you came back, you said they set it up in the legislature, so there was a debate between whether or not they were going to hire more public school teachers or were they going to increase funding for AIDS outreach, and the kids won. <laughs> I mean, that would be like a no-brainer anywhere, but you know, somebody has to agree to set it up that way, set up the debate that way. The, uh, basically, it's a very small number of absolute people, so we're talking about 16 to 25 or 30,000 people in the whole state. So they don't have a political, they don't have a political force to get them listened to, and because of the stigma, they've been unable to make alliances with like uh, housing, affordable housing people, or food people, or welfare. You know, like all the other sort of interest groups that could help them push their agenda through. They can't make those political alliances because it's a Bible Belt thing, and if you have HIV, you must have done something wrong to get it. And then they really don't have the money. The entire state of South Carolina runs on less than the New York City Police Department. <laughs> it's a small state. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Hi. I was wondering why you chose to profile just one family. I know they had a lot of characters, but when I, when I look at my stories, I think that I need to get a bunch of different people that show that same issue. So I'm curious what that thought process was. Um, I always say that if you can take one character and dig deep, you'll get to the truth faster than if you take five characters and stay shallow. June and Lisa, I'm interested to know, you were filming over several years. I'm guessing you had multiple cameras, multiple people um, giving you know, input, footage, and so on. How did you keep track of it all? What was your <laughs> workflow to put it all together? That was a nightmare in edit because it started in... 2009 with the PD-150 and then it was the tape EX, camera. yeah, a tape camera. And then it was an EX-1 and then we got into the 5D and there were all kinds of different formats and different shooters and different styles. And that, I mean, we really felt that in edit. Um, technically, storytelling wise, I mean. Yeah, it was, it was, so the big mistake that we made at the beginning, well, not knowing that it was going to take six years, was that we labeled, we were organizing things by trip. So we had trip one, trip two, trip three, trip four. Well, five years in, trip one, trip two, trip three didn't mean Shanola to me. Um, and we had to go back and reorganize everything by character and scene and where were we and bites, you know. So it was a different, we had to basically go back and do a reorganization. Um, and then we shifted from Final Cut to Premiere. That was a godsend. I love Premiere Pro. I will love it till I die. Uh, it took all seven. So Final Cut was really antsy about dealing with seven different camera formats. And Premiere Pro took them all in, and it, it was fine. It was like you know, it was like one day to take in. We had forty-four thousand clips. Forty-four thousand. Forty-four thousand clips. So how, did you log those? Or how, yeah, how they're all logged. Wow. I can show you my logs, yeah. I've shown them my logs. They like, sort of look at me with their eyes glazed.
what happens to the film after Independent Lens? Then, then what happens? Are you gonna? Are you doing a lot of outreach and screenings and? Yeah, we are. Um, the AIDS Healthcare Foundation, which gave me, you know, in a in the pure frontline world, I would never have been able to get money from the AIDS Healthcare Foundation. But in the pure frontline world, I wouldn't have needed the money from the AIDS Healthcare Foundation because they would have given me the money. So I was $20,000 short at the end of the day and I couldn't afford to get the film mixed and color corrected. So the AIDS Healthcare Foundation came in for that last 20. Thank God, they are just on top of it with, I mean, they pulled us out to LA for the Pan-African Film Festival. They're sponsoring like a Southern tour. Um, me and Deschal are gonna do a Charleston, Tallahassee, Atlanta, and Houston. I think we're going on a four-city tour. That during, they're organizing. That they're organizing, yeah. Um, and had you just hooked up with them in the course of doing research, or how did you well, find we, out about them? The yeah. scene with Monica, yeah. that was the AIDS Healthcare That's Foundation. Okay. And so they, had sh they actually shot that footage. We weren't there. I see. And I acquired the footage from them. And then at some point, I think I was in South Carolina spring break of last year, of 2015. And um, I wasn't here, so yeah, that's true. I was on sabbatical, but I was down there. And I mentioned to one of the AIDS healthcare people that I was, I was, I was a little worried about whether or not I was going to be able to finish. You know, I might run out of money because the Ford Foundation money was running out. Um, and so she said, well, you know, we have, you know, AIDS healthcare foundation might be able to come in. And I was like, I diddled about it for about six weeks. And then I decided that getting the film done was better than being prideful. <laughs> what I mean, what made what gave you pause? I know it's the line, but explain it's that. It's the line. It's, it's the line, <laughs> it's but the explain line. that. So the you appearance, you want to avoid the appearance of any conflict of interest. So the AIDS Healthcare Foundation has a definite, um, it has a point of view. Um, it is an advocacy group for people who are living with HIV. Um, sort of beyond that, it's very anti-PrEP. So the PrEP is this drug that's now out that if you supposedly, if you take it every day, it'll keep you from getting AIDS. They've taken a very strong position against this. So it's not only that they're uh, sort of involved in an advocacy level, but they're involved with a very definite point of view. So all of this is just, it's a no-no from a journalistic point of view. I had made all the editorial decisions by that point, and so I had to sort of find a way to allow myself to take the money um, without, they had no input yeah, on the film at all. Yeah, you had final cut. I had final editorial say, yeah. They had none, actually. They had, you know, they didn't see it until after it was done. So many of us are doc students, our docs are in their infancy, we're trying to think through like what is the story going to be? And so I'm wondering, it's for both of you, but um, I guess for you Lisa kind of first, when you first discovered this, what did you visualize the storyline as being? Because I'm sure you couldn't have imagined that all of these like deaths would have occurred and all of these things would have happened. And then what happened that you all were most surprised by but you felt like this is going to like make the point of the film sort of? You know, I didn't have any doc experience at all. I was a news student, you know. I, so I saw a story. I saw something urgent. I, saw, I felt like something was there in my gut, but I didn't really know what the storyline was until we started spending some time with, the, with this family. Um, and there were so many layers to this story from, like, the state level, the activists, the family. I mean, I was totally in over my head. So I couldn't really see it from beginning to end. And that's, you know, where I had to work with June. <laughs> yeah, I think once we figured out, 
Robert and I spent hours and hours and hours trying to figure out a way to just start in 2009. And I think once we hit upon the idea of starting in the church scene, because it was emotional and it had, you know, it was it was uplifting, it had energy, it was beautifully shot. Um, so once we hit upon that, then it became a question of how do you use that as an organizing principle? So was the film going to become a flashback? Is the whole film going to like start there and then become a flashback? So we have a version where we do it as a flashback and we keep trying to come in. We used Mina's testimony to thread us through the film so that she was sort of commenting, seemed like she was commenting on her life, but that wasn't quite working because we didn't understand enough about what the policy was and she wasn't involved enough on the policy side to really make it clear. So then we had to <laughs> go back to plan plan A again and you know we kept the one thing that stayed was the um the church scene. We sort of have all these scenes and we're sort of thinking in our heads and we do our we had this whole wall of cards, index cards, sort of like this is what we think the act structure was. Don't ask me what I thought the act structure was now. Yeah, no, the, student, um. the doc <laughs> students will be figuring that out for you this weekend. Thank you. Thank you so much. It really sure. was so beautiful Thank to you. see it again. It's just a <laughs> Thanks to June, Lisa, and Betsy. So part of what we do on this podcast is make recommendations, talk about things that we've seen or heard lately that we've liked. Have you seen anything lately that you that you would recommend? Put you on the spot. The yeah. last thing I saw was the OJ um, ESPN 30 for 30. The five, I actually was able to watch the whole five hours. Um, and it's a really interesting study of race sports and politics and sort of the tragedy of a man who tried to rise above race and instead imprisoned himself inside this identity of his own making, which he then is undone by at the end of the day. I mean, it's a, a really intriguing narrative. Let me see. What else have I done? You know, I saw this wonderful little film on the airplane on Vice about Phil Tippett. It was it was Vice profiles, and it's the it's the guy who invented Jabba the Hutt for Star Wars. He was a stop motion animator. I've literally watched this thing three times since fr Saturday, um, just because it's this it's like thirty forty minutes long, and it's the story about this guy who was spent his entire life becoming a master of something, which was stop motion anim uh, animation. He invents all these characters for Star Wars. He goes to work on Jurassic Park, but then computer-generated animation has begun. So his, he thinks he's entirely done. His entire career is over. And then he discovers that, in fact, no, his career is not over because the guys that know how to do computer-generated graphics know nothing about how to set up eyelines or how to set up the background so that the creatures that they're creating look real in the environment. So he's like, he said, every time the technology changes, I just have to think to myself, how do I, how does what I know apply to this situation? How can I, anyway, he ended up winning the Oscar for Jurassic Park. <laughs> That's right. so great. Thank you so much, June, Thank for you. coming by. I'm sorry. Good, Good to see you. Already. Bye-bye. Don't forget, you can see Wilhelmina's War on pbs.org on the Independent Lens website until June 1st. That's it for this episode. On Assignment is produced by Asta Chaturvedi. Thanks, as always, to our funders at the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, to Columbia, 
and to our wonderful student fellows, Daniel Litke, Erica Glass, and Laura Brickman. We're going to miss you guys. They're graduating. We, we think. We hope. Fingers crossed. Our music is by Dylan Nowick. And our sound engineer is the talented Shep Burkon. You can find all our episodes at our website, onassignmentpodcast.org, or search for us where you listen to your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at onassignmentpod. Let us know what you think in a review on iTunes. Please, please. And be sure to subscribe on iTunes as well. Until next season, everybody. Do a little. Is that sound of music? So long, farewell. Auf Wiedersehen, goodbye. Adieu, adieu. To you and you and you.